Well, join me in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, every song that we have sung this morning has led us uh, to this chapter. Very appreciative of Rudy in leading us this morning. John chapter 14, and we have certainly taken our time through this chapter. And part of the reason for that is because this is one of the most reassuring and comforting chapters in all of God's word. John 14 is a chapter filled with precious promises that only Christ could give. Promises that span the whole spectrum of wonder and amazement. From the guarantee of a heavenly home in verses 1 through 7 to assurance of salvation through the unity of the Son with his Father in verses 8 through 11 to access, verse 13, access the Father's throne room of grace in prayer to the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit not only promised to indwell every believer and seal every believer in Christ, we saw that in verses 16 through 20, but to the promise of what we looked at last week, Verse 26, the promise that the Spirit would also give an inspired word that would ground our faith through the apostles. Precious gifts from Christ to his people. Each gift meant to calm an anxious heart. Each promise, a reason why we can, verse 1, not let our heart be troubled Each gift meant to instill a confidence in our sovereign God. Each gift, each promised, a gift of love and of hope. And yet, what do we find in this chapter? It is that each promise of hope necessitated pain and loss. Find a paradox. For Jesus, each of these promises necessitated the pain of his cross. For Jesus to go and prepare a place for his apostles required him to go, not referring to heaven, but to go to the cross. In order for Jesus to grant access for his apostles to the Father through prayer, Verse 12, I must go to the Father through the cross. Every promise we have seen in this chapter is a cross-purchased, pain-filled promise. And pain would also be for these apostles. They, too, in order to receive these promises, these gifts... They too need to do experience pain, not the pain of the cross like Jesus, but the pain in losing Jesus. Since each of these promises require Jesus to leave them. They needed to lose the master whom they loved. They needed to lose the teacher they cherished in order to receive these promises from Christ. This is the paradigm for the way God usually works. 
The greatest of promises comes through the greatest of pain. The highest joy is only known through the deepest loss. The most precious blessings are experienced in the deepest valleys. This is Psalm 23, isn't it? We walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but Christ is with us. There's the joy. There's the experience. And at this point, this is Thursday night, probably Friday morning, early, the Passover meal has concluded in just a matter of moments. These men will walk through the shadow of death. Jesus will meet his betrayer in the garden. He will be bound by the Roman soldiers. He will stand trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He'll be condemned by a Gentile prefect. All of this to the horror of his apostles. And in that horror, they will flee him. They'll flee the one they love. They'll abandon him. They'll leave Christ there in the garden alone. One will even deny Jesus in a courtyard while Jesus watches through an upper window. These men are about to experience the deepest pain of their lives. And yet, what does Jesus promise in verse 27? This is where we'll pick it up. Verse 27, Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. In the midst of their coming trouble and heartache and sorrow and loss, Jesus leaves them his gift of peace. Shalom in the Hebrew. The Greek equivalent here, arene. Both words signifying far more than the absence of trouble. Far more than that. Peace, referring to a positive bestowment of prosperity and safety and well-being, even health, depending on the context. Peace, this gift of peace can even refer to wholeness, completeness, harmony, contentment. One theologian defines peace this way, a state of being that lacks nothing and has no fear of being troubled in its tranquility. It is euphoria coupled with security. Does anyone want that? This is what Jesus is pronouncing upon these men, this divine blessing of tranquility and joy and hope, security of soul, just as right before the moment, chaos, havoc, is about to break out all around them like never before. As we lead into this, first of all, notice that Jesus is putting himself in the place of Yahweh by doing this. And Jesus is doing what the Old Testament says only God can do. Number six, the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Psalm 29, the Lord will bless his people with peace. Psalm 85, the Lord will speak peace to his people. Jesus is placing himself in the place of God. He's promising to give only what God can give. 1 Kings 2, peace is from Yahweh. And now here in John 14, Yahweh given peace is now Christ given peace. 
And Jesus has every right to do this, not only because he shares in the same nature as God, but we know who Jesus is. Isaiah chapter nine, he's the prince of what? He's the prince of peace. And think of the context here to see just how amazing this promise of peace is. Jesus is taking that defining characteristic of his coming kingdom, it's peace and security, again, blessing, harmony, safety, all of that shalom, all of that peace. He's taking that defining characteristic and he's telling his apostles that they can experience that kind of peace now, even before his kingdom is established on even the deepest and darkest of nights. And they can experience it personally within their heart. Peace is the opposite of the troubled heart. Christ gives us an unshaken calmness here, a stillness of soul, a tranquility of mind. Even though these apostles are about to lose Jesus and everything around them will come crashing down. Now, notice also, notice specifically the kind of peace Jesus is promising. Notice the next phrase here, my peace. My peace, the same peace Christ possessed as he slept soundly during a storm. The same peace that allowed Jesus to walk unafraid through a crowd as they tried to throw him off of a cliff. The same peace Christ will demonstrate in the next few hours, the same settled calmness as he watches his betrayer approach him, the same composure as he stands silent before his accusers, that same security he experienced as he was sentenced to die, he's beaten, yet the peace of heart he has to remain faithful. He's mocked, yet he has an inner peace to pray that the mockers would be forgiven. He's nailed, yet he has the peace to remain fearless. Jesus says that peace, my peace, that's the peace I'm promising you. Peace that will sustain you through the worst of circumstances, the most severe injustices, the greatest of anguish, the most intense of fears, that peace. It's peace that can only be explained through the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is divine peace. Notice the flow of Jesus' promise here. Jesus' promise of this inner personal, heart-calming peace in verse 27. It flows out of the promise in verses 16 through 17. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter. Who is that? That is the spirit of truth. But now in verse 27, Jesus says more about this helper, this comforter. Yes, he's the spirit of truth. He's also the spirit of peace and calmness and harmony. The Holy Spirit is the source of Jesus' peace. He's the source of our peace. 
It was through the Spirit, through the Spirit, that Jesus found peace while he walked this earth. It was through the Spirit that Jesus found peace as he suffered on the cross. So think of Hebrews chapter 9. Through the eternal Spirit, Christ offers himself to God. Peace in the cross comes through the Spirit. And now amazingly here, Amazingly, that same spirit, that same comforter, that same source of peace, Jesus says, he's ours. That's my gift to you. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as fearful, anxious, troubled, fretting orphans. I, me, Jesus says, through the spirit will come to you. The Spirit has been my source of peace, and now I will send the Spirit of peace to you. He'll be your source of peace. He'll calm your heart, ease your soul. It's Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit is peace. He's the source of our peace. In fact, turn to John chapter 20. John 20 Notice what Jesus does after he resurrects. He appears to his apostles. You can see verse 21. His apostles are fearful for their lives. They're hiding in a locked room. Their hearts are troubled to say the least. And so what does Jesus do in verse 21? Jesus said to them, peace, wholeness, security, harmony, Peace be with you. I'm taking away your fear. I'm removing your dread. I'm giving you my peace. How? Verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of what will take place at Pentecost. The Spirit will come mightily to indwell and be that spirit of peace on the inside. This is what Jesus is promising. Christ's peace is no ordinary peace. The Prince of Peace promises the Spirit of Peace. And the Spirit of Peace gives a peace that cannot be removed by this world. Why? Because the Spirit can never be taken away from the believer. The Spirit grants a peace that is not dependent upon the circumstances of life. Why? Because the Spirit sovereignly works every circumstance for our sanctification. And the Spirit gives a peace that is not fleeting, is not temporary. Why? Because the Spirit is with us and even more in us, verse 16, forever, forever. This is lasting peace. Now, this is unheard of in our society, isn't it? This is unheard of. I think Jeremiah 8 describes our day. Jeremiah is describing the false teachers, but just think of it in the context of today. When the world says, peace, 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 peace through financial security, peace through government intervention, peace by breathing the right way, peace by visualizing your happy place, 
Peace through self-compassion. By the way, those last three, those are Oprah's rules for peace. I didn't think Oprah was still a thing today, but she is. Those are all from Oprah's rules for peace. That's the world's peace. That's all we can offer. The world's seeking peace of mind, peace and quiet. Yeah, what does Jeremiah say? Peace, peace, but there is no peace. There's no peace that the world can give. That is why, turn back to John 14, that is why Jesus says, continuing verse 27, he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. This is different peace. This is not worldly peace. The world gives peace by removing problems. Christ gives peace by giving his spirit. The world's peace comes only through selfish gain. Christ's peace comes through selfless sacrifice. The world's peace is based on favorable circumstances. Christ's peace comes by believing divine, cross-bought, Christ-secured promises. Maybe that's why we don't have the peace that we should today. The world's peace fails when circumstances change. Christ's peace endures since his promises are always true. That's how we've been unpacking this chapter, 12 heart-calming, enduring, never-changing promises that if believed, if believed, will keep our hearts untroubled. Each promise Christ gives sufficient to calm any fear and any worry or anxiety we might face. And it brings us to promise nine and 10 for this morning. Let's start with promise nine, heart coming promise in the midst of this troubled world rather than being troubled in heart. Promise number nine, we can be fearless. Fearless, why? Because God's sovereign plan can never be thwarted. God's sovereign plan can never be thwarted by any, in any way and by anyone at any time. So notice how Jesus develops this. Verse 27, do not let your heart be troubled. Exact same phrase from verse one, everything within the chapter falls within this command, untroubled heart. But now Jesus adds something. He adds, nor let it be fearful. An untroubled heart now becomes a fearless heart. Do not be cowardly in this world. Do not be terrified. That's the call. And this is a necessary addition. Why? Because the sorrow of Jesus' departure that has filled the apostle's heart, that sorrow is soon going to turn into fear when they see Jesus arrested and executed. They will flee their savior in fear, in terror. Peter will deny Jesus in cowardice. Remember what's already taken place back in chapter 13. Satan has already indwelt Judas. 1327, 
after a morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, both to Judas and to the power behind Judas, what you do, do quickly. Jesus knows that the power of darkness will have its way with him very soon. Jesus knows that Satan is on his way. In fact, look at verse 30 here. What does Jesus say? 1430, the ruler of this world, mark that, the ruler of this world is coming. Not only do we live in a troubled world, we live in an evil world. It's ruled by Satan. Notice the word Jesus chooses to describe Satan. It's ruler, archon, ruler. It means sovereign. It means king. Lord, prince, Ephesians 2. What does Paul say? Satan is the prince, the archon, the king, the ruler of the power of the air that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is not a neutral world. The emphasis is on Satan's supernatural strength and mastery, his power and control, his working of evil through sinful men. And according to Jesus, the realm of Satan's rule is the world, not the planet, not planet Earth per se, but to that invisible evil kingdom. That kingdom, that evil, that wickedness that permeates our planet. It's that wickedness that energizes corruption and iniquity and godlessness. No doubt John is referring back to this statement of Jesus and he writes, 1 John 5, the whole world, that evil world system of corruption, the whole world lies in the power, under the control, the reign of the evil one. Yes, this is a troubled world. This is also an evil world. Ruler here, graphic title, meant to emphasize Satan's evil dominance and wicked purposes. World, the world shows the extent of Satan's power. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, the ruler of the world is coming. He's coming after me. He's coming to arrest me. He's coming to bind me and sentence me and crucify me. He's the force behind Judas. He's the one who will move the chief priest to pronounce their judgment on me. He'll energize the Roman soldiers to mock me and spit on me and flog me and nail me to that cross. He's coming after me with all of his might. Necessary addition, why? Because in chapter 15, Jesus will then add something. He'll note to his apostles that he is not the only one who Satan will come against. There's a demonic anger. There's an evil scheme. It will not end on Jesus, no. It will also overflow to his apostles. Notice what Jesus adds, chapter 15. You have all these promises of love and hope and joy. Chapter 14, 
And then in chapter 15, you then have a promise of coming hate, certain persecution, even execution. Look at verse 18, 15, 18. If the world, notice the phrase, the world, the ruler of the world, this fallen world, evil world system ruled by Satan himself, if the world hates you, and it does, and it will, if that is true, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hate is coming. The same demonic vengeance you will see coming against me, Jesus says, that's coming after you. Verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Persecution is on your horizon. Chapter 16, look at verse 2. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. You will be excommunicated. You will lose everything you hold dear. In fact, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. You're going to be killed, martyred, executed for your faith. Jesus, why didn't you just stop after chapter 14? Why? Because this is an evil world system. Yes, Satan will have his way with Jesus on this night, but Jesus says, man, you must understand Satan is also going to have his way with you after I leave. That's where this final farewell is going. And true to Jesus' word, all of this plays out as you move into the book of Acts. Acts chapter four, Peter and John are thrown into prison. Acts five, the apostles are flogged, ordered to stay silent. Acts 7, Stephen, by the way, he's the first deacon for all the deacons out there, first deacon, Stephen's stoned to death. Acts 8, the church is persecuted and scattered. Acts 12, James is killed by a sword. Peter is again in prison. That's just the first 12 chapters of the book. The ruler of this world will have his way with you. That's coming. This is why Jesus adds that command, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it, your heart, be fearful. Even with all of this, there is no reason for you to become cowardly. Though the ruler of this world is strong and evil and malicious, and though he has his sights set on you, there is no reason for you to fear, which leads to the question, why Jesus? Why? How? I mean, you are talking about Satan. You're talking about death. You're talking about the worst evil imaginable. And you're telling us not to be fearful? Have you lost your mind? How, Jesus? Why, Jesus? Notice the reason, the promise that Jesus gives at the end of verse 30. For the ruler of the world, this phrase now, has nothing in me. The rule of the world has nothing in me. Though Satan is evil to his core, and though he is a king, 
a ruler in his own right. He has nothing in me. He has no power over me. He has no control over me. He, despite his most depraved efforts, cannot stop my mission and cannot alter my father's purposes and cannot prevent the spirit's work. He can't stop any of this, though he will try. And Jesus uses this double negative to emphasize the ruler of the world has absolutely nothing on me or over me at all. Jesus is preparing these men for the evil that's coming. No evil that will happen to me on this night and no evil that will overtake you later. None of that evil will ultimately be ruled by Satan. Oh, he will be active and he will be working, but it will not ultimately be ruled by him. The only reason evil will have its way against me, Jesus says, is because it will fulfill my father's design. There's our peace. In fact, what will look like defeat for Jesus will actually be Satan's defeat. Jesus will actually triumph through this evil, over this evil. He'll conquer it. He will conquer Satan himself. Think back to chapter 12, John 12. You remember Jesus has already promised this. Chapter 12, verse 31, the ruler of this world will be ekbalo, thrown out, cast out, driven out, removed, conquered, defeated. The king will be destroyed. And so this is why Jesus can leave this upper room confident and bold and fearless, knowing full well that he is about to experience the full fury of Satan himself. But this peace is not just for him. This is for his apostles. This is why he promises them his peace, his calmness, his victory. Fear need not ever overtake them. Us. Again, why? What is the principle? Because God's redemptive plan cannot be thwarted by anyone in any way, anytime, even by the ruler of this wicked world. Even the worst of evil, the betrayal and crucifixion of Christ, the worst of evil, the greatest sin ever to be committed, the greatest injustice, even that cannot disrupt God's sovereign purposes and plans. Do we need to believe that today? It's the same principle. There is no sin, there is no evil, there is no ruler, there is no power, there is no decision, there is no law, no form of depravity, not even the God of this fallen world that can ever hinder or change or alter or delay God's perfect plan for his people. And thus in our troubled and wicked world, we can be fearless. 
We can be fearless. Why? Because God's sovereign plan can never be thwarted. It's promise number nine. It leads into a 10th promise that Jesus offers here for an untroubled soul, fearless heart. It builds on this, promise number 10. In a world where sin runs rampant and the God of this world is allowed to have his way to a point under the control of Yahweh, Here's the 10th promise. We can be joyful. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? We can be joyful. Why? Because God's ways are always better than our plans. God's ways are always better than our plans. Pick it up in verse 28. You have heard that I said to you, I go away. The apostles could not miss this. They've heard the message loud and clear. 1333, I go. 1336, I go. 142, I go. Loud and clear. He's leaving. It's what sparked the troubled heart within these men. But then Jesus says, And you have also heard that I said to you, I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. You've heard that I'm leaving you, but you must remember, you must hear that I'm coming to you through my spirit. I'm coming to you in a better way. Look at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you through the spirit. I'm leaving, but I'm coming. Verse 20, I will be in you through my spirit. Verse 21, I will disclose myself to him, to every believer through the Spirit. I'll be at the right hand of the Father, but my Spirit's coming to you. Verse 23, we, the Father and the Son, will come to him, the believer, and make our our home, our abode, our dwelling place with him, all through the Spirit. I will be with you, though I'm leaving but I will be with you through my Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's been the promise throughout this chapter. Here's the problem. That is not what the apostles wanted. It's not what they wanted. They wanted Jesus to stay, not the Spirit to come. They wanted Jesus with them and next to them, not the spirit in them. This is why they're sorrowful. Let's put it this way. They do not believe that Christ's ways are better than their ways. They don't believe that. They think they know best. Even though Jesus is going to tell them that his leaving coupled with the spirit's coming is for their good More, for their best. John 16, it'll be on the screen. John 16. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. It's your betterment. I'm going to give you what you need most. You need me to leave you. You need to experience the sorrow of my cross, my departure. You need this. Why? For if I do not go away, if I I do what you want me to do, Problem is, the Spirit will not come to you. And you need the Spirit in you more than you need me next to you. It's only if I go that I will send him to you. 
But again, the problem, Jesus' apostles do not believe him. They're too short-sighted. They think they know what is best for themselves. This is a rhetorical question. Have you ever been there? You read the promise, promises, that God will only work for the good of his people. You read that the Lord withholds no good thing from his children. You read Psalm 34. For to those who fear him, there is no want, no lack. We have everything from our Savior. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. We read Psalm 84, 11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We read those promises. We can add Matthew 7, 11, Romans 8, 28, Romans 8, 32. On it goes, promise after promise. God only does what is best for his people, for his glory. And yet, what do we do so often? We doubt God's goodness, don't we? We question his ways. We believe that our ways, our plans, our wants, our prayers are better than God's ways. Why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do, God? That's what the apostles are doing here. They do not believe that what Jesus was promising them was what they needed. They did not believe that Jesus had their greatest good in mind. They thought they knew better than their Savior. And so Jesus tells them, continue verse 28, Jesus tells them, if you loved me, if you loved me, Jesus is not saying the apostles have no love for him. That's not the point. Now, the point here, at this moment, their love for themselves, their love of their own wisdom, their love for their personal and immediate comfort and ease, that love has eclipsed their love for Christ. That's why they don't believe. We trust who we love. We trust who we love. Look back at verse 15. What does Jesus say? If you love me, boils down to our love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What commandments does Jesus have in mind? Back to verse one. Here's the commandments. Believe in me. Believe me. Trust me. We trust who we love. And right now, the apostles were loving themselves more than Christ again. Have we ever been there? And thus they are trusting in their own wisdom more than Christ's promises. And so Jesus gives them, us, a needed rebuke. Verse 28, if you loved me, if you remember that I always have your best in mind, you would have rejoiced. There's the joy. Your temporal sorrow would be replaced with lasting joy. Why? 
because my leaving you means this, I go to the Father. And when I go to the Father, that is when I will be free to give you what you need most. This is best for you. What I will do for you at my Father's right hand is far greater than what I can do for you now in my humiliation at your side. It's far greater. When I ascend to my Father, what you don't want me to do, remember, you don't believe this, you don't want me to go, but when I do, that will mean that your salvation has been purchased in full. When I ascend to my Father, that will mean that your heavenly home will have been completed. When I ascend to my Father, that will mean your justification has been secured. When I ascend to my Father, that will mean that I will intercede for you at the Father's right hand. When I ascend to my Father, that will mean that I will send my spirit to indwell you and seal you and breathe out my words through you and illuminate your mind to my truth, sanctify you into my image. It means all of this. You need all of this. If you would only believe, if you would only believe me, love me, trust me, me believe that my leaving you is for your best. Bring this to us if we would only believe that Christ's ways are far better than our ways in every situation. If we would only believe that, then our sorrow would be turned to joy. And our fear would be turned to peace and our troubled heart would indeed be calmed. Finish the verse, verse 28. This comes back to sovereignty now. For the Father is greater than I. This is why I must leave you. I must leave you because the Father knows best. The Father's plan is perfect. Father is greater than I. Jesus is not referring to any ontological by nature inferiority. That's not the point. We already saw that. It's not true in the first 13 chapters of John. What Jesus is pointing out here is this, that the Father has the authority over his redemptive plan. The Father is the one who has sent Christ into this world he sent Christ to live for us, to die for us. This was the Father's plan. This is the Father's commission to his Son. It's John three sixteen. The Father, for God so loved that he gave his only Son, he sends his Son. Redemption is the Father's design. It's been authored by the Father. Well, Jesus says, in order for me to complete my Father's saving work. I must do. I must do what you do not want me to do. I must do what the Father has commissioned me to do. Let's put it in these words. I must obey God rather than man. I must leave you for that is the only way your redemption will be completed and the spirit will come. I must leave. You don't want me to, I must do it. This is the structure of the Trinity. If 
Father, Son, Spirit, equal in nature, and yet the Son always submits to his Father. And thus Jesus says, in submission to my Father, in love for my Father, in order for me to complete my Father's redemptive plan, I must go and you must believe. It brings us back to verse one. Verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. How? You believe in God. You believe the Father. You believe that the Father's ways are far greater than your ways and your wisdom. If you believe that, you will be filled with joy. You can rejoice. That's the promise. Verse one again, we not only believe in the Father, God, but we believe in me, Jesus says. Believe that my promises are always for your greatest good. And if you believe that, your troubled soul, your troubled heart will be calmed. A needed rebuke for us, I believe. Yet a comforting one. Here's the two heart coming promises we can cling to despite the chaos of our world. Promises that can never be taken away. Promise number nine, God's sovereign plan can never be thwarted. Not even by the ruler of this world. And promise number 10, God's ways are always better than our plans. And he will always do what is best for his people. Father, we are thankful that you are indeed the sovereign king. Thankful that you are the good God for your children. Think of what Jesus said. If, if sinful fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more do you know how to give to your children what is good and what is best? So our prayer this morning is that we would believe that. By your spirit, give us that faith to believe in you and to believe Christ. That we would indeed rejoice when everything around us says not to. That we would be given that great gift of full peace that comes through your spirit. We, pro we pray this in Christ's name, amen.